Chapter Twenty Five of the Mesmerist Victim by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Second Sight. From his garret, Gilbert was watching, or rather devouring, Andrea's room. It would be hard to tell whether his eyes now gazed with love or hatred. But the curtains were drawn, and he could see nothing in that quarter. He turned to another. Here he espied the plume of Corporal Beausire, as the soldier to beguile his waiting whistled a tune. It was not till ten minutes had elapsed that Nicole appeared. She made her lover a sign which she understood, for he nodded and went toward a walk in a cutting leading to the little Trianon. Nicole ran back as lightly as a bird. Ha-ha, thought Gilbert. Nicole and her trooper have something to say to each other which will not bear witnesses. Good! He was no longer curious about Nicole's flirtations, but he regarded her as a natural enemy, and it was wise to know all her doings. In her immorality he wanted to find the weapon with which he might victoriously meet her in case she should attack him. He did not doubt that the campaign would open, and he meant to have a good supply of weapons like a true warrior. So he nimbly came down from his loft and reached the gardens by the chapel side door. He had nothing to fear now, as he knew all the coverts of the place like a fox at home. Thus he was able to reach the clump where he heard a strange sound for the woods, the chink of coin on a stone. Gliding like a serpent up to the terrace wall, hedged with lilacs, he saw Nicole at the grating, emptying a purse on a stone out of Beausire's reach by being on her side of the railing. It was the purse given by Richelieu, or strictly speaking, the cash for the treasury notes which she had converted. The fat gold pieces clinked down, glittering, while the corporal, with kindled eye and trembling hand, attentively looked at Nicole and them without comprehending how they came into company. "'My dear Beausire, more than once you have wanted me to elope,' began Nicole. "'And to marry you,' added the soldier quite enthusiastically. "'We will argue that point hereafter.' replied the girl. At present, the main thing is to get away. Can we be off in a couple of hours? In ten minutes, if you like. No, I have some work to do first, and a couple of hours will suit me. Take these fifty louis. And she passed the amount between the bars. He pocketed them without counting. And in an hour and a half, be here with a coach. I do not shrink, but... I am fearful about you. When the money is spent, you will regret the palace, and— Oh, how thoughtful you are! Do not be alarmed. I am not one of the sort to become unfortunate. Have no scruples. We shall see what comes next after the fifty louis. She counted another fifty louis into her own purse. Beausire's eyes became phosphorescent. I would jump into a blazing furnace for you, he said. "'You are not asked to do so much,' she returned. "'Get the coach, and in two hours we are off.' "'Agreed,' and he drew her to the rails to kiss her. "'Oh, how are you going to get through the railings?' "'Stupid, I have the pass-key.' Beausire uttered an "'Ah!' full of admiration and fled. With brisk feet and thoughtful head, Nicole returned to her mistress, leaving Gilbert alone 
to cogitate the questions which this interview excited. All he could guess of the puzzles was how the girl had obtained the money. This negation of his perspicacity was so goading to his natural curiosity, or his acquired mistrust, have it either way, that he decided to pass the night in the open air, cold though it was, under the damp trees, to await the sequel to this scene. A huge black cloud, coming out of the south, covered all the sky, so that beyond Versailles the somber pall gradually lapped up all the stars which had been gleaming a while before in their azure canopy. Nicole feared that some whim of her mistress would contravene her plan, and with that air of interest which the artful cat knew so well how to take, she said, "'I am afraid that you are not very well to-night. Your eyes are red and swollen. I should think repose would do you good.' "'Do you think so?' "'Perhaps it would,' answered Andrea, without paying much heed, but extending her feet on a rug as she sat. The girl accepted this reclining pose as a signal for her to take down her mistress's headdress for the night. The unbuilding of a structure of ribbons, flowers, and wire which the most skillful housebreaker could not have demolished in an hour. Nicole was not a quarter of that time doing it. The toilet for the night being completed, Andrea gave her orders for the coming day. The tuner was to come for her harpsichord, and some books which Philip had sent to Versailles were to be fetched. Nicole tranquilly answered that if she were not roused in the night, she would be up early and would do everything before her mistress rose. As Andrea, in her long night wrapper, was dreaming in her chair, Nicole put two drops of the draught Richelieu had given her into the glass of drink on the night table. Turbid for a moment, the water took an opal tint which faded away gradually. "'Your night drink is set out,' said the maid. "'Your dress is folded up and the night-light lit, as I must be up early. Can I go to bed now?' "'Yes,' replied Andrea absently. Nicole went out and glided into the garden. Gilbert was looking out for her as he promised himself he would do, and saw her go up to the gates where she passed the master key to Beausire, who was ready. The gate was opened and the girl slipped through. The gate was locked again and the key thrown over, where Gilbert noticed its place of falling on the sward. He drew a long breath in relief, for he was quit of Nicole, an enemy. Andrea was left alone, and he might penetrate into her room. This idea set his blood boiling with all a fury of fear and disquiet, curiosity and desire. But, as he placed his foot on the lowest stairs of the flight leading to Andrea's corridor, he beheld her, garbed in white at the top step, coming down. So white and solemn was she that he recoiled and buried himself in a copse. Once before, at Tavernay, he had seen her thus walking in her sleep, when she was, without his suspecting it, under the mesmeric influence of Balsamo the magician. Andrea passed Gilbert, almost touched him, but did not see him. Bewildered and overwhelmed, he felt his knees crook beneath him. He was frightened. Not knowing to what errand to ascribe this night roaming, he watched her. But his reason was confounded, and his blood beat with impetuosity in his temples, being nearer folly than the coolness which a good observer ought to possess. He viewed her as he had always done since his fatal passion had entered his heart. All of a sudden he thought the mystery was revealed. 
Andrea was not wandering out of her mind, but going to keep an appointment, albeit her step was slow and sepulchral. A lightning flash illumined the sky. By its bluish glare, Gilbert caught sight of a man, hiding in the linden walk, with pale visage and clothes in disorder. He stretched out one hand towards the girl as though to beckon her to him. Something like pincers nipped Gilbert's heart, and he half rose to see the better. Another lightning stroke streaked the sky. He recognized Baron Balsamo, covered with dust, who had, by the aid of mysterious intelligence, entered the locked-up Trianon, and was as invincibly and fatally drawing Andrea to him as a snake may a bird. Not till within two steps of him did she stop, when he took her hand and she quivered all over her body. "'Do you see?' he asked. "'Yes,' was her reply. "'But you have nearly been the death of me in bringing me out like this.' "'It cannot be helped,' returned Balsamo. "'I am in a whirl, and am ready to die with the craze upon me.' "'You do indeed suffer.' said she, informed of his state by the contact of his hand alone. Yes, and I come to you for consolation. You alone can save me. Can you follow me? Yes, if you conduct me with your mind. Come. Ah, oh, said Andrea, we are in Paris, a street lit by a single lamp, we enter a house. We go up to the wall which opens to let us pass through. We are in so strange a chamber, with no doors and the windows are barred. How greatly in disorder is everything! But it is empty. Where is the person who was there last? Give me some object of hers that I may be in touch. This is a lock of her hair. Andrea laid the hair on her bosom. "'Oh, I know this woman, whom I have seen before. She is fleeing into the city.' "'Yes, but what was she doing these two hours before? Trace back.' "'Wait. She is lying on a sofa with a cut in the breast. She wakes from a sleep and seeks round her. Taking a handkerchief, she ties it to the window-bars.' Come down, poor woman. She weeps. She is in distress. She wrings her arms. Ha! Huh. She is looking for a corner of the wall on which to dash out her brains. She springs toward the chimney-place where two lion-heads in marble are embossed. On one of them she would beat out her brains when she sees a spot of blood on the lion's eye. Blood. And yet she had not struck it. "'It is mine,' said the mesmerist. "'Yes, yours. You cut your fingers with a dagger. The dagger with which she stabbed herself, and you tried to get it away from her. Your bleeding fingers pressed the lion's head.' "'It is true. How did she get out?' "'I see her examine the blood, reflect, and then lay her finger where yours was pressed.' Oh, the lion's head gives way. It is a spring which works. The chimney-plate opens. 
cursed imprudence of mine groaned the conspirator unhappy madman i have betrayed myself through love but she has gone out and flees the poor thing must be pardoned she is so distressed whither goes she andrea follow follow i will it she stops in a room where are armor and furs a safe is open but a casket usually kept in it is now on a table she knows it again she takes it what is in it your papers it is covered with blue velvet and studded with silver the lock and bands are of the same metal ha ah, was it she took the casket cried balsamo stamping his foot yes she going down the stairs to the ante-room she opens the door draws the chain undoing the street door and is out in the street it is late it is night-time once out she runs like a mad thing up on the main street towards the bastille she knocks up against passengers and questions lose not a word what does she say she asks a man clad in black where she can find the chief of police so it was not a vain threat of hers what does she do having the address she retraces her steps to cross a large square royal place it is the right road read her intention run run quick she is going to denounce you if she arrives at criminal lieutenant sartina before you you are lost balsamo uttered a terrible yell sprang into the hedges burst a small door and got upon the open ground there an arab horse was waiting on which he leaped at a bound it started off like an arrow toward paris andrea stood mute pale and cold but as though the magnetizer carried life away with him she collapsed and fell in his eagerness to overtake lorenza balsamo had forgotten to arouse andrea from the mesmeric sleep she had barely touched the ground before gilbert leaped out with the vigor and agility of the tiger he seized her in his arms and without feeling what a burden he had undertaken he carried her back to the room which he had left on the call of balsamo all the doors had been left open by the girl and the candle was still burning as he stumbled against the sofa when he blundered in he naturally placed her upon it all became enfevered in him though the lifeless body was cold his nerves shivered and his blood burned yet his first idea was pure and chaste it was to restore consciousness to this beautiful statue he sprinkled her face with water from the decanter but at this period as his trembling hand was encircling the narrow neck of the crystal bottle he heard a firm but light step make the stairs of wood and brick squeak on the way to the chamber it could not be nicole who was on the way with both sire or balsamo who was galloping to paris whoever it was gilbert would be caught and expelled from the palace he fully comprehended that he was out of his place here he blew out the candle and dashed into nicole's room 
timing his movement as the thunder boomed in the heavens. Through its glazed door, he could see into the room he quitted and the ante-room. In this latter burnt a nightlight on a small table. Gilbert would have put that out also if he had time, but the steps creaked now on the landing. A man appeared on the sill, timidly glided through the antechamber and shut the door, which he bolted. Gilbert held his breath, glued his face to the glass, and listened with all his might. The storm growled solemnly in the skies. Large raindrops spattered on the windows, and in the corridor an unfastened shutter banged sinisterly against the wall from time to time. But the tumult of nature, these exterior sounds, however alarming, were nothing to Gilbert. All his thought, mind, and being were concentrated in his gaze, fastened on this man. Passing within two paces, this intruder walked into the other room. Gilbert saw him grope his way up to the bed, and made a gesture of surprise at finding it untenanted. He almost knocked the candle off the table with his elbow, but it fell on the table where the glass, save all, jingled on the marble top. Nicole, the stranger called twice in a guarded voice. Why, Nicole? muttered Gilbert. Why does this man call on Nicole when he ought to address her mistress? No voice replying, the man picked up the candle and went on tiptoe to light it at the night lamp. Then it was that Gilbert's attention was so concentrated on this strange night visitor that his eyes would have pierced a wall. Suddenly he started and drew back a step, although he was in concealment. By the light of the two flames he had recognized in the man holding the candle, the king. All was clear to him. The flight of Nicole, the money counted down between her and Beausire, and all the dark plot of Richelieu and Tavernay, of which Andrea was the object. He understood why the king should call upon Nicole, the complacent female Judas, who had sold her mistress. At the thought of what the royal villain had come to commit in this room, the blood rushing to the young man's head blinded him. He meant to call out, but the reflection that this was the Lord's anointed, the being still full of awe as the King of France, that froze the tongue of Gilbert to his mouth-roof. Meanwhile, Louis XV entered the room once more bearing the light. He perceived Andrea in the white muslin wrapper, with her head thrown back on the sofa-pillow, with one foot on another cushion and the other cold and stiff out of the slipper on the carpet. At this sight the king smiled. The candle lit up this evil smile, but almost instantly a smile as sinister lighted up Andrea's face. Louis uttered some words, probably of love, and placing the light on the table he cast a glance out at the inflamed sky, before kneeling to the girl whose hand he kissed. This was so chilly that he took it between both his to warm it, and with his other arm and clasping the soft and so beautiful body, he bent over to murmur some of the loving nonsense fitted for sleeping maids. His face was so close to hers that it touched it. Gilbert felt in his pocket for a knife with a long blade which he used in pruning trees. The face was as cold as the hand, which made the royal lover rise. His eyes wandered to the Cinderella foot, which he took hold of. It was as cold as the hand and the cheek. He shuddered, 
for all seemed a marble statue. Gilbert gritted his teeth and opened the knife as he beheld so much beauty and regarded the royal threat as a robbery intended on him. But the king dropped the foot as he had the hand. Surprised at the sleep which he had thought to be feigned in prudery by a coquette, he prepared to learn the nature of this insensibility. Gilbert crept halfway out of the doorway with set teeth, glittering eye and the knife bared in his grip to stab the king. Suddenly, a frightful flash of lightning lit up Andrea's face with a vivid glare of violet and sulphur light, while the thunder made every article of furniture dance in the room. Frightened by her pallor, immobility, and silence, Louis XV recoiled, muttering, "'Truly, the girl is dead!' The idea of having wooed a corpse sent a shudder through his veins. He took up the candle and looked at Andrea by its flickering flame. Seeing the brown-circled eyes, the violet lips, the disheveled tresses, the throat which no breath raised, he uttered a shriek, let the candlestick fall, and staggered out through the antechamber like a drunken man, knocking against the wainscoting in his alarm. Knife still in hand, Gilbert came out of his covert. He advanced to the room door, and for a space contemplated the lovely young maid still in the profound sleep. The candle smoldering on the floor lit up the delicate foot and the pure lines above it of the adorable creature. Gilbert trod on the wick, and in sudden obscurity was blotted out the dreadful smile which was curling his lips. "'Andrea,' he muttered, "'I swore that you should not escape me the third time, that you fell into my hands as you did the other two. Andrea, a terrible end was needed to the romance, which you mocked at me for composing.' With extended arms he walked toward the sofa where the girl was still cold, motionless, and deprived of all feeling. End of chapter 25 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia